Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. As criminal legal news put it, quote, it appears that when governments stop killing, so do their citizens, unquote. A recent study showed that contrary to the notion that the death penalty deters murder, the murder rate declines when countries abolish executions. For inclusion in the study, a country had to meet the following criteria. One, the death penalty had to be abolished at least 10 years earlier. Two, at least one execution had to have been imposed or accomplished in the decade before abolition. And three, murder rate information had to be available from the World Trade Organization. 11 countries met the criteria. Albania, Azerbaijan, Bulgaria, Estonia, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, Latvia, Poland, Serbia, South Africa, and Ukraine. Only Georgia had a higher homicide rate during the decade after abolition. As for the U.S., it's been demonstrated repeatedly that states without the death penalty have lower murder rates than those states that have it. In 1997, Bank of America started providing credit to private for-profit prisons when it entered an agreement with one of the two largest such prison corporations, GeoGroup. Today, Bank of America is among a dozen banks continuing to provide billions of dollars in credit to private prison corporations that violate human rights, including the top two, GEO and CoreCivic. Bank of America is the only bank of the top six in the U.S. offering credit to the for-profit prison industry. This information was published by In the Public Interest, the Public Accountability Initiative, and the Center for Popular Democracy. Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan Chase announced in March that they intended to end their relationships with for-profit prisons, but banks both large and small still provide over $2.6 billion in credit to the industry. Nearly three-fourths of detained immigrants are living in prisons operated by for-profit corporations, according to the Detention Watch Network. The National Institute of Health has found that 91% of prisoners reported hunger after incarceration. A report by the Bread for the World Institute argues that poverty in the U.S. would have decreased by 20% between 1980 and 2004 if not for mass incarceration, which, the Institute says, also increases hunger. According to the Institute, once released, former inmates have trouble obtaining work, and when they do, quote, they suffer a permanent reduction in their lifetime earning potential by nearly $180,000." As a result, one in four households headed by a released inmate lives in what the Institute calls deep poverty. The Institute found that children with incarcerated parents are almost three times as likely as others to experience such conditions as depression and anxiety. This week, we speak with Zolo Azania, a black revolutionary who spent 35 years in prison, 27 of those years on death row. He's from Gary, Indiana, and successfully won his release in 2017. 
This is the first of several episodes with Zolo, who walks us through the beginning of his time in prison and the changes he saw there over the years. Here he is. My name is Zolo Agona Azania. I was born Rufus Lee Averhart. Uh, in 1977, uh, I changed my name, and that was at a pivotal point in my life when I had, was serving time. I was in Pendleton, uh, Indiana State Reformatory in Pendleton, Indiana. And that was where my re-education process began. I met two men. They both were older than me by a few years. They were members or former members of the Indianapolis chapter of the Black Panther Party. And those two men, named were uh, Hugh Lyons and Macalhu Gaetti. Uh, Hugh Lyons also subsequently changed his name to Umwatha. So those two men uh, are instrumental in me actually uh, beginning to re reawaken uh, to a new me. Or where they raised my raised my level of consciousness, and I uh, learned self discipline, and began to reeducate myself while I was in prison. That was in nineteen seventy between nineteen seventy five and nineteen seventy eight, and that took place. I had a, a home invasion robbery case where uh, a murder took place. I was eighteen years old at the time. I was raised in a single parent home. I was brought up in the city of Gary, Indiana. We had it kind of hard as far as uh, poverty was concerned. So I was uh, subjected to that, and I had formulated a type of uh, philosophy to make sense out of how I was living. Well, I ended up going to jail, and then subsequently to prison at the age of uh, 18. But I, uh, I arrived in prison after I turned 19, so I was staying in the county jail for 16 months, Lake County Jail. Crown Point, Indiana. And while I was there, I got into things like into the prison life, like you see this, this like the stereotypes. Some of the stereotypes uh, are true, but uh, I, I didn't like it. I, I knew I had a feeling of letting my childish things go, the things I used to like and do prior to my uh, incarceration. I no, no, no longer like, like those things. I began to uh, paint and draw and write poems to express myself. And I learned that I had a talent that was uh, untapped, unused, and unexpressed. Another man named uh, William Turner was an artist. And he had some serious family problems and emotional problems. And but it was directly related to his family. He took a liking to me after he saw some of my writings, and uh, not writings, but necessarily uh, my drawings. I did a lot of color pencil and just regular uh, pen and ink and uh, regular graphite or pencil. So he wanted me to learn how to paint and which I was glad that he took the time to show me, instruct me and teach me. He also helped me get in school to study for my uh, GED. I learned how to paint you know relatively fast I think because that's what I liked. I liked to do that. Well uh, I imitated William Turner I imitated him, uh, what he painted. He painted uh, Malcolm X, and he did pictures of well-known political figures that wasn't liked much. 
Now, at the time, I put things in context. Malcolm X, to mention Malcolm X's name, was still invoked in fear and anger and hatred, even though the man had been dead for maybe almost 10 years at the time. So William Turner showed courage, but I did not sense it at, at, that, at that time because I was imitating him. I did not have the knowledge of what all that stuff was about to even have any fear or fear for my life, for example especially by Malcolm X. But I, I learned that certain people was not liked or appreciated by the prison administration. It was illegal to have a book about George Jackson. You can go to lockup if you got caught with a book. But we had more of those books running around over the place. How they got in, I don't know. <laughs> but they, were, they were considered contraband. We didn't have the right to those books. But I, I got those books and I would begin to re-educate myself. That's when Macau Macau and uh, Umwatha came in the picture. They were more intellectuals or prison intellectuals, and I wanted to imitate them. I wanted to learn how to speak like them. I wanted to learn how to express uh, dignity and, and self-discipline. And uh, I saw how in, in situations where I would be angry or, or someone who didn't know any better would, would be afraid maybe, they showed courage, and sometimes they would smile and laugh. I was wondering, how they do that, you know? Well, once I began to learn and re-educate myself, I wanted to be a part of a movement. I wanted to be a part of change, change in a positive way. I would write letters home. I would try to talk to everybody and anybody who would listen to me to express my new ideas that I had recently acquired. You know, it's like a child having a toy and you want to show it to all your friends or a bike, you know. That's how it started out, you know, uh, during my early years in prison in, a, in the early 1970s. I got out of prison on parole in July 1980. When I got out of prison, I began to put my theories into practice, as Karl Marx would call it. Even though I mentioned the word Karl, name Karl Marx, it was more uh, Mao Zedong and V.I. Lenin who uh, I, I, I studied and relied upon their interpretations of uh, Marxist theory and practice. I met a few black revolutionaries in the underground, and that is what attracted my attention more than anything else. Uh, it has been t said sometimes and, and printed in different publications that I was a member of the Black Panther Party, well, I had been a member of the Black Panther Party, but I was never a member of the Black Panther Party. I was educated by some members uh, who were Panther Party members. Uh, I used to read the newspaper and study the newspaper, but I was never an active member of the Black Panther Party. I became a member of the BLA, uh, the Black Liberation Army, and, and that was uh, the gist of my activities. I, I refused to participate at that time, marching on any picket lines. I refused to stand out with a bullhorn and, uh, and condemn anything or to protest about anything. I was more quiet and, and went about the business of remaining anonymous. Uh, I took a vow of poverty. Uh, I got rid of all my uh, worldly possessions and was willing to give up my life 
and I eventually uh, was arrested and captured uh, following an uh, armed bank robbery in which a police officer was killed in the city of Gary, Indiana, and that's what led me to uh, death row. Conditions in the prison in the 1980s in Indiana, early 1980s up to 1985, was pretty much open. We was uh, enjoying, when I say we, I mean the prisoners, were enjoying the benefits of the struggles of the previous decade. You know, with the prison movement uh, spearheaded by uh, George Jackson and uh, uh, San Quentin Six, the popularity of his book, Soul Dead Brothers. And then on the heels of that, after, this, after George Jackson's assassination, the Attica Rebellion, and the organization and the demonstrations that took place during and after the Attica Rebellion, where the, uh, the prison was forcibly taken over, and uh, state, uh, New York State Police and National Guard went in and just selectively uh, and, in, and indiscriminately uh, murdered uh, guards as well as uh, prisoners. And uh, while I was in prison, during the 1980s, we, we had the right to read any book we wanted. You can receive books from family and friends. Uh, we had uh, study classes. We were, uh, matter of fact, a black study class was started uh, in Mission City. And we were freely given a room. It was a non-credited course. But we were allowed to uh, organize and to uh, study. We brought in speakers, uh, you know, the whole the whole nine yards. We uh we was able to enjoy that. We had uh, more recreation time. We were allowed to file lawsuits. We were allowed to file grievances. We had recourses for relief through those processes. And then up to about 1985, it started to take another turn. Uh, those things, uh, our, uh, the, the, the concessions. Uh, that we had we had won through various means of demonstrations and uh, court action was slowly being rolled back. Control units patterned after the Marion, Illinois federal prison, lockdown prison. Uh, the state had began to make overtures to the legislature for money to build more prisons and more secure prisons, but they kept it secret that it was control units isolation units. So uh, that's what was, was, was going on at the time when I went back to prison in 1981. Uh, but I was on death row at that time. And when I went back to prison, I did not have the same type of uh, anxiety or uh, uncertainty. I knew how the prison system worked, and it wasn't hard for me to fit in and just, like I never left, and just get back into my studies and working on my case, filing appeals, court actions, and uh, organizing. I did a lot of writing during that period of time also. And my, uh, my thought process had been beginning to change. I, be, I wasn't seeing things in simple terms of black and white uh, on this side or that side. I was seeing that it was, it, it was fluid. And I, I began to focus more on human rights and dealing with people uh, based upon what Martin Luther King said on the content of their character and their conduct, I began to reach out more to people who were white 
and other nationalities. Prior to that, I was my philosophy was white people organized in the white community, black people organized in the black community, but it's not just that plain and simple. You know, we're not dealing with two different species of human beings. We're dealing with one species of human being. That is the human race, and there's only one. In my own mind, before I start to write about it and to express it openly to my other comrades and to other people, I had to work it out in my own head first. And then slowly I began to begin to write and to formulate another way of thinking of how to deal with this. Because now I don't know if I'm ever going to make it out of here alive. Uh, I was determined. I just, I, and I, I never said if, I always said when to keep that positive tone in, in my mind where I can always pull it up and I can hear it all the time. That you're getting out, just don't know when. And uh, so I, I, I had that attitude for all those years and I held on to it. But I continued to work and I used that cell. It's my world. This is my world right now. And uh, for every, anything I need to do, I'm doing it from this cell. And that's what I did. When I went back to prison in 1981, even though I was on, even though I was on death row, I was able to see things objectively because I wasn't caught up in the mix. I wasn't out there in the population, uh, going to the mess hall, going to uh, the gym for recreation, going to the movies, seeing all the different movies, going to the classes, going to the visiting room. I wasn't caught up in all of that. I was isolated, and anything I uh, uh, obtained or received was brought to me from my food, from uh, seeing a doctor or a nurse. Everything was brought to me to the cell. I was able to objectively look at what was going on, and I was able to uh, analyze it uh, objectively and say things the way I actually see was seeing it. So I would actually say what I saw and repeat what I heard. And I would analyze what I've seen and, and saw and, and heard. I would analyze it and, and put my take on it, what I got out of it. And, 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 and I began to do writing on short pieces of paper, and I would distribute them around the prison. So from that cell, I was, because I saw things falling apart. It was falling apart with the different, the revolutionary mentality was changing, and it was being it was uh, disappearing and being supplanted or replaced with the colonial criminal mentality. So then you had, uh, when, you used to, when you used to have demonstrations and group participation in different activities, it became criminal activities inside of the prison. Extortion, robberies, rapes, trafficking, everything you can think of on a negative level. It was... Uh, being ran and controlled by the gangs. The, the respect that people we had acquired over the years for having a revolutionary uh, uh, mindset or activity or showing some type of progressive, positive attitude and self-respect and respect of others, that was being replaced with raunchous, flamboyant, disrespect, loud, anything goes attitude. So I couldn't figure it out. I didn't know what was going on. There was really no gangs, real gang activity, even with the, uh, the, 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 the I, I'm trying to get away from the word racism. I, I'm, I'm using that word less and less. I use the term now bigots or bigotry. Bigot activity or conduct or, or mentality, e even that wasn't to the level of gangs like what we came to know of it, them nowadays. That was 
pretty much pushed to the back, pushed to the side. But those whites who was getting caught up or victimized by the black prisoners who were gang members began to group, form groups of themselves. And then they start formulating gangs. So that's how it started to spread. And then from there, people being released, it was taken to the streets. And uh, the underground economy became dominant. So when you had people who would have uh, block parties or house dances or house parties, they would have uh, uh, guerrilla theaters and where people would put on uh, performances where you would have uh, musicians who would be at the train stations or the bus stations or out in the park or on a city street corner with a bucket or a basket asking for donations. You had people who was robbing, uh, selling drugs, trafficking in drugs, and the money became so came in so fast, the gangs uh, began to use that to uh, promote other criminality and downplay uh, revolutionary activities. And some people who were progressive revolutionaries at the time, they began to fall victim to that same type of mentality. So I, I, I was, in my mind, I refused. And it was kind of scary because it was almost like a riot. I've been in a couple of race riots before. And that's one of the, that's the only time I was, I was scared in prison because I got white friends. And you can, but in, in a situation like that, everything happened so fast and you looking around, you, you can't hesitate, you can't wait. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy situation. It's, <laughs> that's how the gang activity began. And I, I would write and I would try to analyze it and I would criticize it. But I criticized it cautiously because I wasn't sure what was going on. You know, because there, there were more stabbings with the, among prisoners. Uh, there were um, killings. When we used to didn't do these things, we used to have unity where we didn't have a work stoppage. Everybody didn't uh, stop working. When we uh, had demonstrations about the con con prison conditions, uh, everybody demonstrated, and those who didn't, didn't try to do anything to undermine what we were doing. When, when, we, when we won concessions and from different things uh, in the courts and outside of the court, everyone benefited. We all enjoyed small concessions that we received in, in prison, even though we were still prisoners and deprived of our uh, uh, freedom, we, you know, we, we still, we was able to, we had entertainers coming into the prison. Uh, Loretta Lynn, uh, she had uh, a nephew there. And Loretta Lynn, the coal miner's daughter, performed many times in the prison. But the, but the prison administration covered it up. They didn't let the public know that you had people showing interest in us as prisoners. So the whole mindset and the whole conditions were changing. So we had less and less support. But the support that I received did not come from the people that I thought would support me. The, the support that I received came from people that, who was in the Christian community, churches, white people. A lot of progressive white people helped me, even with their attorneys. So now I'm looking and I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on here? I'm not receiving the support from hardly any black people. So there's something else happening. So that's when I really started to, I actually started to reassess everything and then start vocalizing it coming out. I'm feeling more secure with this new way of thinking that I'm beginning to acquire. 
I even started reading autobiographies. And every autobiography I read basically said the same thing. And everyone who became famous or received a, a notoriety or a celebrity status, all of, all of them had something in common. They had humble beginnings, humble beginnings, and uh, they were in prison or in jail at one time. So I said, okay, so instead of me looking for leadership outside of myself, I began to cultivate leadership within myself. And first I had to have leadership and self-discipline over myself, over my own conduct. And that is when I uh, began to write and give instructions and, and, and express my ideas in little small zines and pamphlets and uh, sheets of paper that I, had on a, that I, did, I produced on a manual typewriter. I did not know how effective I was until I got released from death row and into the general population. And I used to walk around looking for people I knew. And the population at that time had begun to change. It was more young people in prison than, than the older prisoners. When I first went to prison, I was, when I went, into, when I went in to the actual Indiana State Reformatory, I, I, I had turned 19 years old. And I was young, and that was uh, a rare rarity. Now, seeing someone 19 years old, that's, that's dominant. They are dominant, dominating the prison. So they did not have the, the same type of respect that we had for one another. And, and we, we, we would uh, listen to the elders to learn how you conduct yourself, how, you, how to survive in prison, how to make it. The younger people coming in was relying upon the gangs to protect them. And that was uh, organization without direction. Wherever the wind blows. And they justified by saying they're making money. So I was able to penetrate that in a positive way and gain respect from a lot of those people. And, and it worked. So I tell people that story that uh, I did a lot of writing and I did not forget where I, where I, how, how, how I was before I began to uh, re-educate myself and, and begin to open my eyes to see what's going on. And that the, the movement or the issue is not painted in black and white. It is not in black and white. It is dealing with economics, uh, class, and uh, human behavior. This is what we're talking about. Because some things, uh, some people uh, had uh, mental problems, but it was you, you, it wasn't e easily uh, distinguished, and it wasn't recognized that that's what it was, such as. Uh, Manic depression, depression, stress, bipolarism. But these things nowadays, it's receiving attention now. So that's how uh, prison life was during the early 80s up to 1985. Then after 1985 to, I would say, mm, the 1990s, that's when it reached its peak as far as the, the, the insane violence, uh, criminal gang activity, and the colonial criminal mentality dominating. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. 
If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.